if you come to my laboratory, I have a PhD student who's got my brains and culture. I have another one making liver cells. So I have my liver, my brain, and my kidneys being studied under disease context. We put something on in to see. This is going on in my lab. Not everyone likes to do that because they're scared. I'm not. Hello, my name is Abna Sewa, and you were just listening to Professor Dr. James Ajay, Director of the Institute for Stem Cell Research and Regenerative Medicine and Chair for Stem Cell Research and Regenerative Medicine in Dusseldorf, Germany. In this Academy Magazine podcast episode, he tells us more about his entry into science research and how his research is contributing to developments in personalised medicine. I was born in Ghana. My dad was a diplomat, we travelled a lot. Then we came back to Ghana. I started prep school in Ghana. Then I started secondary school, Accra Academy. After the third year, then left and came to London. Then in London, started um, high school. John Kelly Boys High School in Neeston. Actually, it does not exist anymore. So thereafter, went to university in Cardiff. At that time, it used to be called University College Cardiff. I did biochemistry there. Then, then after my bachelor's, I moved back. I did a master's in University of Sussex, Brighton. Yeah, this was more, this was actually now coming more into what I am now. Yeah. So the, yeah. the master's was also like genetic engineering. So then after the, that, came back to London and did my PhD at King's College London. And funny enough, actually, the work I did for my master's, the thesis was studying Alzheimer's disease in the fruit fly, Drosophila. You know, yeah. it's a fly which they use a lot for genetics, genetic studies, etc. But the protein I was looking at then is called the A4. A misorganization of that protein is also part of the Alzheimer's disease pathology. But then I did something completely different. At that time, I was thinking myself as a neurobiologist, I was going to do something to do with the brain. So the PhD work was looking at proteins called neurofilaments. And these proteins you find in the brain. At that time, this protein had been identified in, of course, human, of course, in mice. But then the PhD was quite exotic. So I had to look for this protein in the squid. Oh, wow. Exactly. And the squid, of course, you cannot keep squid at home in a tank or in a lab in a tank. Because squids, you know, they, they need space. They have to live in the yeah. wild or, you know, even the zoo, you know, whatever. So mm-hmm. anyway, so for that, I remember we used to go, I used to go, we used to call it the squidding season. So around November, December each year, I used to go to Plymouth. There's a marine biology lab in Plymouth. So they will go in the morning. The trawler will go out in the morning. I didn't join them. Go in the morning and they'll come back with so many different exotic sea creatures, right? And when it comes back, scientists within the building then will take the ones they want to work with. So mine was the squids. So when they'd come, I'll take the squids, I'll catch them, I'll decapitate their heads and isolate their brain or the optical lobe, which is more or less their brain. And then take that back to London and then isolate what we call RNA, genetic material, and worked on that, et cetera. So that was the, the, um, the PhD work. And then when I finished the PhD, then was a crossroads. What do I do next? But I think I was determined that I need to do science. I want to be a scientist. At that time, it was always like neuro, you know, brain. So then 
after my PhD, of course, after PhD, you go and do what you call a postdoctoral fellow, a postdoc, or become yeah. a postdoctoral fellow. So the choice was either you go to the US or you stay within Europe. But at the time, the trend was to go to the US. So I applied to US at John Hopkins. And then I also interviewed with a professor, also Klaus Weber. He died a few years ago. He was based in Göttingen, just mm-hmm. Lower Saxony here in Germany at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry. So I met them both. Klaus Weber was very, very kind. I felt comfortable with him. So after my PhD, I moved to Germany. But 92 was the time when there was a lot of right-wing riots. I remember a place in Germany called Zollingen, also in Rostock, right-wing movement, or let's say the Nazi, um, they burnt down asylum seekers' homes, etc. You know, So it was a bit like scary coming. My mom was like, oh my God, what are you going to do in Germany? Anyway, I did. Göttingen is like a seat of knowledge. You know, it's like the Cambridge of the UK, you know, it's just yes. university town, 100,000 population, 60, 70 of those are students, you know. So I went to Germany, worked for three years, but I still carried on on this quest to understand brain development. So mm-hmm. there I worked also on exotic creatures, but this time there was one marine called Mexicola. But what was very common at that time was to work on the snail. So we used to go at night when they're crawling, we used to catch them, bring them back, crack them open and dissect their brain and what have you. So more or less, I was doing what I did for my PhD, looking at these neurofilaments in the squid. I was doing the same thing, but in a snail. Yeah? So the idea was more the evolution, how these proteins evolved from a unicellular organism like Hydra and coming to man. Where have these proteins been, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so on the snail, we identified this protein, I cloned it, I sequenced it, we published it, et cetera. God, that was like, we're going, we're talking like 94, 93. But then I went back to my favorite Drosophila, and the Drosophila has not got these proteins. Somehow these, they have a brain, but they don't, they don't have these proteins. It means that other proteins take over the function of that. So anyway, I finished that work, and Professor Weber, his wife, Professor Mary Osborne, English lady, excellent scientists, both of them, said, okay, James, so far, if I look at your CV, you've been doing exotic research, you know, how does that apply to man? How is man going to benefit from this? You know, you're looking at snail, you're looking at this, this is just luxury research. So if you're going to go back to London, try and do something serious, where you think they'd be beneficial to man. Yeah. Because this is just basic, what you're doing is basic stuff for textbooks, right? Can you put a human relevance to it? So I thought, okay, that's good. That's a good point. So I decided to come back to London. Of course, London is home. Parents are here, my brothers. So I came back to London and I worked at the Institute of Child Health, which is part of University College London. And there I worked with a professor, Marilyn Monk. And there I wanted to understand also how, say IVF, you know, in vitro fertilization. So the work I did there was together with a King's College Hospital, the IVF unit there, and also Roll Free. So there I worked with them. We went to the IVF clinic. So basically the man provides the sperm. The woman is super ovulated, they get her eggs, they fertilize the sperm in a test tube and let it grow and then implant the, into the woman. So I used to get these surplus embryos. So not every embryo actually survives. So yeah. some were used for research, which was human material, human embryo, potential life. But these were embryos that would never develop into a baby. You know, they just failed embryos, degenerate embryos. What would you be doing with them then? What were you looking so, at? So, so with those, so for instance, we had access to the, to the eggs, the oocytes from the woman, which were fertilized, but the egg and sperm did not fuse. So you had what we call failed fertilized eggs. Then in terms of development, when egg and sperm come together, 
then they start dividing. When they fuse, you have a single cell. Then it becomes two, four, six, eight, to 100, 100 cells with the blastocyst and this implant. So we had access to all of these. And then I developed a method to look at the genes which are active in these stages of development. So I was one of the early people that did this, this type of work. So what year are we talking about now? So when I came in 96, so we looked at all this, developed protocols for that. We published, it was very good. But it got to a point where, you know, pyramid of lattice, you know, you're going like this as a pyramid. You can all start. When it gets to the top, only a few would go through. And the few did not include black people like myself. Even if you look at the spectrum now in the UK, it's hardcore science, science research, male or female. How many black university professors do you see in the UK? For biology and science. You see, that's the difference. You know, you've got to a point where it's like, okay. What am I doing here? I'm doing my best. I'm doing, I'm getting money for research through the Wellcome Trust, Medical Research Council. Doing excellent work, if I say so myself. But getting that position was elusive. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to pack my bags and I go to the other country, which I know best in Europe. And that is Germany. (laughs) So I left. But in terms of that pyramid, is it a bit wider when it comes to Germany? Is there more opportunity for you? Well, well I'll, I'll explain. Um, I always say that in the UK, the culture there is backstabbing. They'll smile at you and behind your back. Yeah. You know this. You've heard about yeah, this. Yeah, That's what yeah. I mean. And I saw my white English colleagues. And when I say English, you know, I don't ever say English than white. Yeah, English. They were doing well. They're becoming, you know, they're getting their professorships and moving forward, you know. And people like myself, I had a good friend of mine, um, Paris Ataliotis. Hope you don't mind me mentioning your name, Paris, but I don't think you're going to listen to this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, he's like Cypriot. You never go anywhere. Yeah. Right. And then we saw the other white, you know, friends of ours just moving, moving, moving. So I said, you know what, I've had enough of this. So I packed my bags in 2000 and went to Berlin. Uh, I got a job at the Max Planck Institute, Molecular Genetics. And that's where I went and developed myself in Germany. It wasn't easy. But I did. So I got into this area of stem cell research and also the Max Planck in Berlin. And then after 10 years, I thought myself, you know what? I'm a group leader. That's fine. But why not try and become a professor? Of course, to become a professor, you apply for it. But it's a long, rigorous selection process. Okay. So anyway, at 2012, I moved to Dusseldorf and I got the professorship here where I'm the director of the Institute, which we call the Institute for Stem Cell Research, Regenerative Medicine. And my title is the Chair for Stem Cell Research and Regenerative Medicine. So my interest really is now to do research into diseases. So brain disease like Alzheimer's is one. Liver disease we work on, non-alcoholic fatty liver, you know, it's a lifestyle disease, huge fat liver inflamed, et cetera. There are other brain-related diseases, NDS we work on, and recently, last three years, I've been working on kidney. But what I do is I I study the disease in a dish. So we we use stem cells to study disease. So what what we do there is, I think it was 2007, is Japanese guy Shinya Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize for Medicine together with John Gordon. So John Gordon did a lot of work in the the African toad called Xenopus, and he showed that the, the Xenopus egg contains genetic material or genes that can transform another cell type into a very young state. You know? So Yamanaka took mouse and then human skin cells, mm. a bit of a punch from your skin. You grow the cells, these are called fibroblasts. 
Then he narrowed down a set of 24 genes into just four. And with these four genes, when he introduced it into any cell type, it would take the cells back to a stage which is equivalent to the fourth or fifth stage of human development. So you transform any cell type into what we call an induced pluripotent stem cell, which is a cell type which you can then turn into any cell you want to in the body. But this is what you have in development. So what I was doing in London years ago, where after the blastocyst, yeah, you have these cells, the inner cell mass, and these cells, there are only like 70 of these kind of cells, right? So the blastocyst has like 100 cells, let's say. And let's say 25 or 20 of those would make the placenta, and the others would make the fetus, the body. So now what we do is we can take any cell type. What we do now is we get urine, including my urine, because when you urinate, yeah. kidney cells are shed in your urine. So we have a way to detect these cells, grow them into millions, and then turn them into what we call a prepotent stem cell. And after these cells, we make brain out of it, we make liver, we make whatever we want. So you can so, regenerate somebody who's got a faulty liver or kidney or Alzheimer's. If a person has a disease, because, you know, when you have diseases, they can either be driven by a mutation in a particular gene, or there's no mutation. So for instance, if you look at Alzheimer's disease, there are two types. The predominant type is called sporadic form. So that's age-related. So there's no mutation in a gene. So it just, like we all, when you get in older, memory loss, et cetera, et cetera. And that can be driven by other environmental factors. Then you have the familial, and that is the one where you are born with a mutation. It's like having breast cancer. This was a BRCA mutation, right? That's a mutation which predisposes you to Alzheimer's disease. But that's only like 5%. The remaining 95%, I always just say us, because one in three would probably get Alzheimer's, right? So that is what we've been studying. But for that particular work, it was a big project funded by the EU. Mm. And for that, we actually used blood cells from individuals rather than skin cells. So why was that more potent to use blood cells? Well, the reason we use blood cells, at that point, most of the protocol for getting cells to do this type of work was taking a skin punch. So to do the Alzheimer's disease project, you have to have a cohort of patients well characterized. So one of the questions was, well, if someone has Alzheimer's, they have a problem because memory loss. So how can you tell them to sign a declaration that they know, do they know what they're doing by signing and telling you that they can have a biopsy? So that was a lot of problems associated with that. But in the end, we managed to get something where there was blood isolated from patients. So we could use their blood. It was just more or less by, bypassing. But you'd still, wouldn't you need to still get their permission? Or is there? Yeah, but, but, yeah but blood is routinely taken. Okay. So there's a bit of leeway there. Whereas if you, if you want a skin punch, why do I need a skin punch from an Alzheimer's disease patient? But a patient, like we all, we go, we always give blood. Okay. So it's easier to get blood than that. So for that particular project, we use cells from blood called lymphoblasts. That's what we use to turn into brain cells. So in terms of the development, in terms of finding a cure with Alzheimer's, where are we at or where are you at? Well, ours is just basic research. Okay. Where we are at, there is not a single medication that works. Um, there are certain pathways which lead to the disease. And one of those is a pathway where it's called APP processing. Let's not go into it. But basically, there's a well-known characterized path that leads to the disease. So they developed medication against targeting this pathway. Never worked. Mm. Then the other one is what we've done research on. It's called neuroinflammation. So basically, you consider Alzheimer's also as, yeah, so this particular protein involved in that, which also, if you have a variant, 
So the function is there, but not as, yeah. So that one, for instance, there's neuroinflammation. You can show that in the laboratory, in experiments, you can show it on the mouse. Then the drugs were made again, targeting that. And just a few months ago, again, it did not work. But, but I'm interested in what you're saying. Basically, you're able to regress the cells that you've taken to a point where you can switch them and make them anything you want. Exactly. You make them more plastic. You know, you, you take it from a stage of, because it's all about development, right? Yeah. So when, when you are day four or we day four, day five, when we were developing, we did not have a brain, we did not have legs, we did not have arms, no genitals, nothing. But there's a stage called gastrulation after five days, after day 14, is where signals are sent in the body, in the embryo, to say, you, you, these cells are there, or these genes would direct some of the cells, you become a brain, you become a heart, you become a liver. Yeah. So this is also my research. So we know key genes, which you need if you want to become a brain. And these genes are not there if you want to make a liver. Okay. They make a liver, of course, yeah? So what we do now is I can take your urine cells, I can take your skin cells, I bring them to this very, very early stage of development. And then no, knowing, because we've published lots of publications around with recipes, how to take these cells and make them to a brain. So you just you do that and the cells become brain cells. So it sounds really positive, like it feels like then you can create a, a cure, yeah, it's not that simple. Alzheimer's is not that simple. Mm-hmm. But like diseases where it's driven by a mutation, a single gene, it's very clear, very easy. Mm-hmm. So for instance, Parkinson's, yeah. that's much better. You know, there's medication for Parkinson's, which modulates, right? And now they're going to start probably next year. They're going to use this technology, which I'm describing from stem cells, using this approach I've described. They make the cell type which are deficient in someone suffering from Parkinson's disease. So they're going to they make that and they're going to transplant that into patients. That's that is going to go on. In Japan, they've already done using this approach. For instance, the first patient they had was for macular degeneration. As we get older, I mean, you wear glasses, I wear glasses too, right? Yeah. So, exactly. So macular degeneration, eye vision gets cloudy, etc. It's just a thin layer in the in your, in your eye, the surface of your eye. So what they did for the first patient, which was like mid seventies, they took her skin cells made them into these stem cells, induced prepotent stem cells, and then they turned them into what we call retinal epithelial cells, and then they transplanted it. She's regained vision. That is so interesting. So this, my brother's a doctor, obviously. Medical doctor. Medical doctor, yes. But right. um, he's talked to me about um, personalized medicine. That's all. That is, so, that is what, this is what I am doing and championing. So Personalized medicine is very expensive. There are friends, companies here who also do personalized medicine in terms of curing cancer, for instance. But that is targeted therapy. If you come to my laboratory, I have a PhD student who's got my brains in culture. We do brain in 3D. So we have brain buds. These are mine. I have published my material. I have another one making liver cells. So I have my liver, my brain, and my kidneys being studied under disease context. We put something on it to see. This is going on in my lab. Not everyone likes to do that because they're scared. I'm not, you know. And my idea might take another two or three years is to do a big publication which talks about a person where you can study their brain, their liver, their whatever, under conditions of disease. So, for instance, there are certain drugs which cause kidney injury. But how they cause kidney injury, we try to understand. 
So one of my PhD students, what she's been doing is making my kidneys in 3D, like a ball. It doesn't, it's not shaped like a kidney as we know it, but it's a ball. But it has all the structures of a kidney. And then she adds a drug called PAN. And we know that this drug causes kidney injury. It's like when you take high dose of paracetamol yeah. and some other drugs. Yeah. So then we try to understand why it causes kidney injury and kidney damage. So yeah, so it's the beauty of doing such work and having the privilege of doing it and as a director, but still scientific and still interesting. So personalized medicine is the way forward because, you know, we all metabolize drugs differently. Yeah. And you know what? All drugs, when they are developing drugs, they do it in a Caucasian population. And then they extrapolate and say, you know what? Let's give it to the black people as well. But maybe we play around with the dose. It's not perfect. But even within, say, even whites and blacks, we all have certain mutations or variants of a key enzyme, 2D6, which metabolizes drugs. And we all have variants of it. So you can have one variant, which would make you a very high metabolizer, intermediate or very slow. So mm-hmm. someone who's, who's very slow metabolizer, then you give them a concentration, which you'd give to someone who's a high metabolizer. It's not going to work the same way. So this is where personalized medicine comes into, where you can target treatment for that particular person. I mean, we did a publication a long time ago, one of my PhD students when I was in Berlin, I think it was 2010. The the concept came in my head like, okay, a woman is pregnant. The baby is not born yet, but can we take cells from the baby? And then in the laboratory, turn these cells further back and make liver, kidney, whatever ready. So when the child is born and they need therapy, their cells are there. And how do you do this? We had a collaboration with the Opsangaini maternity clinic. So you take amniotic fluid, you get these cells, then we turn them back, and then we can take them into any cell type we want with the idea that, you know, even before the baby is born, and if we know that the baby has a condition or might have a disease which needs medication. So before the baby is born, you've tested all potential drugs on the baby's cells. So when they're born, you already can treat the child. So you'll have like a display of if I get any ailments, I know where to go to get my fixes for my replacement liver. In the future, that's what it's going to be. You go to your doctor and say, you know what? They look at your profile because now they sequence genomes, you know? So they sequence the genome. So they know the sequence of your genome that you have this mutation, don't have this mutation. So maybe don't take this, don't take this food. You know, they can telemake your nutrition, for instance. Or they can say, you know, this drug will work better for you, this drug not, especially for cancer, you know? Yeah, so this is where the future is. But it's not accessible to all. In Germany, the health service or the insurance might not pay for this, but if you have a lot of money, especially for cancer, because cancer, again, is not one drug treats all. Very difficult. So those that have money, you go, they have a a biopsy from your tumor, sent to a laboratory, they can sequence it, they can do several things and test and tell you which is the best combination of drugs to treat your tumor. That works, but it's not cheap. What are we talking about in terms of cost? Well, you're talking about 20,000 or more. And this isn't available in the UK? Well, it is, but it's not something the NHS is going to pay for, either. No. I mean, private insurance has to be private done. No. But that is the best treatment, especially for cancer. They do it, and then you, your doctor, and the company that does this would work together. So then they can give you the best combination of drugs to treat you. So how long are we talking if this becomes more affordable and how would it become more affordable because it's personalized? So there's lots of... The, the technology, yes, the technologies are getting cheaper. It's, it's, it's a technology cost, right? Yeah. 
Okay. So sequencing genomes are getting cheaper. So if that is down, then actually price is down. So, you know, sequencing genomes, a thousand euros would sequence a genome, you know, the price are going down, but that is the way forward. You know, that's the way forward. I always say that, you know, banking, if you're going to have a baby, bank their stem cells for future. You never know when. Yeah, the placenta, don't people freeze it? People, or- people, yeah. yeah, people, yeah. But some people freeze the placenta, but I think it's like whole placenta. Mm. Right, that's not that's not used. But normally what people do is actually, when you say freezing the placenta, they isolate cord blood cells and then they freeze it down for future therapy. These are stem cells which are going to transplant for you. Mm. So I'll always, I, I definitely recommend that if you have the disposable cash. I mean, I get people calling me all the time, you know, we're going to have a baby, should I, what do you think? And I'll say to them, make sure you go to a reputable company that will yeah. do it for you properly. And then I'm going to go bust in two years and then your cells are all lost. <laughs> Um, and then, um, yeah, freeze it. Thank you for listening to this episode. In part two, Professor Dr. James Ajay sheds more light on his work in tracking the transmission of COVID-19 between countries in Europe and also West Africa, including Ghana. And he discusses the implications of low uptake of black participants in drug trials. The music in this episode is called Life No Day Easy by Chechiku and the Super Pong Stars and is a special remix exclusively for Akadi magazine. Super Pong Stars is a high-octane patchwork of Ghana's indigenous genres, including palm wine music, high life, Afrobeat and Afro-funk. You can find out more about the band on their Instagram, Super Pong Stars. And if you'd like to listen to more podcasts like this, visit www.academagazine.com. Thank you.